3: And hello, and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your yes. friends at Books of the Year.
2: Uh, well, and we will get into the books, but I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about oh. Tottenham uh, at the top of this, because uh, obviously people will know you're a uh, big Spurs fan, and uh, there's been a huge story involving Tottenham, huge story. Now, those of us who follow you on Twitter will know uh, how you feel about Maurizio Pochettino, but... For the purpose of the podcast, how do you feel about Pochettino getting the sack and then about Mourinho getting the job?
3: Uh, Pochettino's teams were the most exciting Spurs teams I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And for a whole bunch of years, we had the best manager, or the most exciting manager. I know there was, there's the issue of winning stuff, but in terms of going to see football and being entertained and being thrilled, he was fantastic and I remember particularly a Spurs match against Chelsea which was like 5-3 or something but we played in a style that I didn't I hadn't seen a Spurs team play before that whole high press thing which now everybody plays in but at the time we hadn't seen it was you know it was wonderful and it was thrilling so now we have the Antichrist (laughs) things are going to be slightly different.
2: Okay so before we get to the Antichrist were you surprised that Pochettino was no, sacked. Really? No. I was. I was. I think he. I, I think he wanted to be. Oof. I think he might have been sulking a little, but I don't think. I mean, I, I was, was still surprised. going to walk away. But you know, you have to say based on a
3: whole six months worth of apart from getting to the Champions League.
2: I mean, now. yeah. Apart from that, you know. Anyway, enough. No. Enough. Enough.
3: Oh, enough. Okay. Enough. Enough. <laughs> You know, uh, well, this is this is a joyful
2: podcast, It is full it of is. joy. Yeah. It might be full of joy with Mourinho, you never know. Yeah. No happen, you absolutely isn't? do know that it it's no, it's not. Uh, if you want to get in touch,
3: by the way, uh books of the year at yahoo.com and yes. you can tweet us at Books of the Year. Yes, you can. Uh Alex Forbes, I am loving your podcast and the variety of authors covered. Adele Parks who we've uh, the most recent podcast yes. is not someone I'd previously read but her new book will definitely be on uh, the Christmas wish list my book of the year has only just come out but I uh, recently read the mind blowing thriller nothing important happened today by Will Carver I felt I felt like I'd been hit by a truck after I finished it wow Will immerses the reader into the world of cults and the darker side of society at a furious pace, pushing the reader all the way to the very end. I'd recommend it to everyone. Keep up the great work. Looking forward to opening a bookshop next year if Matt needs a job.
2: yeah, yeah. Do you still need you a job? Still need a job. Anyone, please. Uh, Rachel emails, Hi Simon, Matt and producer Ben. Not entirely happy with the idea of Ben's getting named, but anyway. Uh, Adele Parks has to be the nerdiest writer you've ever interviewed, surely. Interviewing her characters, assigning them star signs. I remember the day when Matt used to explode about drama students pretending to be trees. Ah, those were the days. Uh, So I thought he comported himself extremely well. One of my favourite books this year has been Michelle Paver's Wakenhurst, which, of course, we did on the podcast. Uh, It was very absorbing. I enjoyed it a lot. Maud is a great character. I listened to your interview with Michelle again and have to say that I didn't feel any sympathy at all for Maud's father. What a stinker. Best wishes all. Catherine Allen, as a listener of Books of the Year from the
3: very start, I'm greatly enjoying being reminded of the pleasure of books and writing and especially of the existence of good fiction. I'm an academic in a rural Australian university and I'm sorry to admit that I let reading and writing become totally synonymous with work. Listening to you and your almost always wonderful guests... What? Has prompted almost me to, always? ...to read more, more widely and more often, just for the sheer enjoyment of it. Thank you for that. Sometimes you seem apologetic if the rate of podding drops but you don't need to be, on my behalf at least. The pod doesn't have to be regular, just good, and I'm grateful whenever it comes around. And finally, after listening to today's podcast, I want to check that you two have heard of the most excellent apocalyptica, uh, question mark. They occupy such a large part... Oh, that was the end of the sentence. I thought it might be apocalyptica. No, that is the end of the sentence. Yeah, I know, but I thought apocalyptica might just have a question mark anyway.
2: Oh, right, I see. A bit like therapy. Yes.
3: yes. They yeah. occupy such a large part of the Venn diagram of orchestral and metal that I feel oh. sure you must, but if not, consider this as my return for Simon bringing "Disturbed Sounds of Silence to my notice way back. So good. So that's from Catherine Allen. Disturbed again. Sounds of Silence? Yeah, uh, there's a uh, metal band called Disturbed, and they did uh, Simon and Garfunkel's
2: Disturbed. Really? Have you not heard that? I've it? not heard that, no. Oh, really? <laughs> oh! Is it? Okay. We should do a link to that somewhere. You need to, you need to report back. Um, right, this is from uh, Helen Russell on Twitter. Having heard Adele Parks on Simon Mayo's Books of the Year saying gold covers mean that you've made it, imagine my delight at the new Polish edition of my book, Atlas of Happiness, which is... And she's included a picture here uh, where it's gold all over. Really, I mean, you see to go a picture of the, a globe, but the globe is basically gold. So uh, someone thinks that your book's very good, Helen, and worth having gold printing on it.
3: Uh, someone who appears to be called the Chesel Beach. Okay, about talking about Adele Parks. Adele, just like you, these were some of my favourite Enid Blyton books when I was little. Always came out when I was stuck at home, off sick from school. And there's photographs of the naughtiest girl in the school. Uh, the original copies, I think.
2: Yes, it is. Um, uh, da, 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 da. So we asked you we, we, that we would be recording an episode with uh, Lee Child. Yes. Uh, if you've got any coffee-related t- tips, suggestions or questions, email us. And here are your replies. Barbara Reed says, He's not up and coming. He's been writing for a long time. He's oh, been successful for a long time. Read all his books and I love his style. Yes.
3: We do know that. He has yeah. been on the show. We've been yeah. interviewing
2: him for years. Mark Frist. Yeah. Uh,
3: oh no, that's a stupid thing to write, Mark. Sorry about that. Who wrote, who wrote this? Manrick Tan Lee Child is not an up and coming. No, we author. know. We know. He's an already made author. Yeah. Well, it's just irony. I mean, what? Okay. what what's wrong?
2: <laughs> Doctor Blockbuster. Hey Simon, you Virgo. This is obviously some oh. reference to Adele Parks. Too many people on social media don't get or understand irony. One should know this. Gotcha. That's Dr. Blockbuster.
3: Capricorn One. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. Have you ever considered doing it on the radio? Mm. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean... Yeah. Do you think, question for Lee, he mentioned before that a new TV adaptation was in the works with a streaming company. Any update on the progress at all? We'll see what we can do about that.
2: Yes, uh, Andrew Osborne, finished reading Blue Moon on Saturday. Not bad for a new writer. Andrew, again, uh, loving the the irony. Have you ever considered doing it on the radio?
3: Mm. I mean... Nick Johnson, has Reacher ever thought of economising in buying a five-pack of boxers rather than a new pair each town he gets to? Love the podcast. Great to have Matt Trot back. Trot, what, Buying a five... I don't understand the reference, though. Buying a five-pack of boxers? Well, because he always just buys a pair of pants if he needs it, you know, as he, as he needs them. Oh, right. Okay. Obviously, Nick, I mean, I can answer that because I'm obviously... I can speak on behalf of Lee. Yes. He doesn't have anything that he doesn't need, so he only needs them one pair at a time. It's,
2: all, it's only ever a toothbrush, isn't it? That's, what, that's all he's got with him. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, enough of those. Yes. Have you? done it the <laughs> here comes lee child
3: okay here we are at books of the year and uh, we're delighted to have lee child back in our studio with a, a new jack reacher book called blue moon hello lee how are you
0: i'm great and it's great to be back especially here my favorite spot in london what a place this is it's yeah
3: we're recording a particular uh, studio in in the pulsing heart of north london
2: <laughs> Achingly trendy part of King's Cross. It is yeah. achingly trendy, it is. and it
3: is part of King's Cross. And you can walk outside, and you can order yourself avocado on toast anywhere. Yes,
2: yeah, absolutely, and feel very old. Everyone here is at least half my age. And
3: when, but when you when you walk around places like this, because you're here some of the year and you're not here, but do you think, okay? Where, you know, London's still going places, or do you think I don't belong here? What does it make you think?
0: Well, I'm one of the rare English people that has never lived or worked in London. So it's always a sort of strange destination for me. And um, I love the way that it, it moves in lockstep, really, with New York. I remember the 70s, London was dire, New York was dire, you know, the Bronx was on fire every night. And then over the decades, New York is really great now. London is amazing now, just amazing. And um, I love being here. Yeah, it is. It's a great city. I mean, obviously, that's what a banal thing to say, but it really is. It could be. I always defend New York as my favorite. But this um, this is truly just a great place at the moment.
3: Matt and I were talking football earlier, as as we wont wont uh, to do. Me being Spursy, being Liverpool, and you're Villa, aren't you? I am. And of course, Spurs and Liverpool were in the Champions League final, which seems like a long time ago. <laughs> uh, and and now he's he's all cocky. Look, he, it's <laughs> yes. like uh, no. it's almost uh, like you're top of the league and you won <laughs> and you won
2: the cup. eight points clear. Yeah, who, who, who'd have thought? Yes. yes so what very. was
3: it? What was the point that you were trying to make? In now in front of our guests.
2: Uh, so the the well, I was I was wanting to talk about what's what's happening right now at Spurs. Um, but but there isn't there is a further point here, which is that obviously Lee, you're a massive Aston Villa fan.
0: I am, and uh, you know that has a history with Liverpool because uh, I, I remember our glory decade, was sort of early eighties. Mm. I mean, it wasn't hard. let's call it hard. A third of a decade. A glory third of a decade <laughs> would be the beginning of the eighties, <laughs> and uh, Liverpool was the bugbear, Obviously, I mean, I remember one great game at Villa Park. We lost four two, but um, Liverpool was intimidating then, and they are again. And you know what? I can't, I can't really resent them because normally I would, and I certainly did in recent past, you know, the Suarez days or something like that. But right now, Klopp, for all that he's a German, I uh, for I like all that
2: he's a German, right?
0: Yes, you know, I'm an, I'm an old guy, an old English person with that built-in kind of prejudice. Okay. Uh, but it's, he, I love him. He's doing a great job, and I'm feeling pretty good about Liverpool. And I thought. What a thing, last year, 97 points yeah, and not winning it. Mm, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any conversation that you have with it, you realise <clears throat> his grasp of detail,
3: numbers, figures. Yeah. It's, it's quite astonishing. Shine through, doesn't it? So briefly, you think uh, is a good fit, Jack? I think he's... I'm calling uh, you Jack. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lee. You can do that. You can do that. I, I mean, temporarily, yeah. I think, you know, look at dispassionately, because I'm a dispassionate Spurs supporter in that uh, I've had a lot of close friends who are Spurs fans. And uh, again, we went through this whole, got a good friend called Rob Reeves, who was a big Spurs fan. And we would go to every Spurs Villa game, either home or away. And when it was at home in Birmingham, we would go down and we would uh, have lunch at the Albany Hotel at at their Carvery Buffet. And you could have beef, pork or chicken or whatever. And he would have all three. (laughs) We, We used to call him Rob Three Dinners Reeves. And then we would go to the game. And so I got a lot of affection for Spurs in a kind of distant way, especially that sort of hodl our dealers era, you know, which was then. And We loved that. And I think actually, yeah, temporarily, temporarily, Mourinho is a good fit because the sort of players that he likes are there already. It's just a question of a little bit of organization. And I think you're going to have a good season this this year and a good season next year. But it'll be dure. It'll be unattractive football. It won't be… To to what is it? To dare is to win, or whatever. To dare is to thing. do. To dare is Au to dare do.
3: Est <coughs>
0: yeah, last yeah. yeah. You obviously went to grammar school.
3: <laughs> and I just went.
0: Yes, I did. I also went to White Hart Lane when it
3: was you. You looked to you looked across. There's the the cock on the thing, and there's Al Est Fakere
2: is written up there. So yeah. is it, that's still there, though, isn't it? They must. have yeah. can take that yeah, yeah. down. Yeah,
3: yeah. There's a big no. The, Go on. I was going to say, there's a, there's a huge cock. <laughs>
0: we
2: all know what you mean. It's fine. All
0: we'll grown-ups. Me. Come on. Yeah, so I think it's going to be uh, su- successful in terms of writing uh, the ship, getting some points. And so if I was a Spurs fan, what I'd be saying is, all right, I'm going to close my eyes for a year and a half because it'll be we'll get some points. It'll be rather boring football. Then he'll leave in a huff and we'll be starting over at least from a higher position than we are right now. Good. So I think I like it's this. good. Trust, trust. There you trust go. Lee. Sunless uplands. That's is
1: all
0: it is. Uh, I don't
3: mean this to be a crowbar, but is is Reacher into sport? If if if, it, if he could choose on the on the TV, what would he watch?
0: He would. Uh, yeah, he likes soccer, actually. And there's a reference in the second book, um, which is a complete distortion of the chronology of his backstory, because he wasn't yet in the army. And nobody's ever pointed this out, that he wasn't actually yet in the army in 1982. But he says in, he was stationed in, Germ- in Germany, and he went to Holland to see that final between Villa and Bay and Munich and um, he mentions it, and, and he, he said he really enjoyed the game and he liked the villa. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh,
2: I mean, you know, if thought? you're writing it, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. fair enough.
0: Plus, uh, the inside world of publishing, he, he says something along the way like, I hated the Germans, and um, in, for the German edition, they changed that. I loved the Germans, it says. <laughs> <laughs>
3: there you go. So, so what we've learned is that Reach a villa fan.
0: If he's a fan of anything football, yeah, Villa, definitely. A any other, fan. And any any American sport? Would baseball, you obviously, yeah, the Yankees, which is significant for a guy like Regia who grew up all around. Because baseball has a thing called a box score, which is a sort of very simple numerical way of tracking it inning by inning for nine innings. And you, if you, you can't really tell all the detail, but you can see how the game unfolded. And it was very significant for people like Reacher who had grown up on army bases abroad. They didn't really know anything about America because they weren't there, but they could feel connected because baseball was very accessible through the box score printed in the paper the next morning. So he felt he knew what was happening. And in a lot of book, the early books, if he has to be in. Incognito, check into a hotel or something. He uses the, he specifically uses the name of Yankees second baseman from non championship years. Yankee's been so successful. There's only a limited number of those years, but uh, that's how he gets his aliases. Right. Uh,
3: So the new book is Blue Moon. Matt is now going to describe the cover. Here we go.
2: Well, as you would expect, it's it's predominantly blue is the (laughs) is the main uh, colour there. Um, And we've got a well, we're looking at the back of a man who is walking into a wooded area, and we would uh, we would think that that is uh, blue moonlight uh, poking through the leaves, uh, and then picked out in I'm going to say orange as opposed to gold, is your name, Lee. Uh, The new Jack Reacher, Blue Moon, there's only one Jack Reacher, except no substitute. says Mick Herron.
0: The trees are significant in as much as they they want to do the jacket pretty early because it takes a long time to get these things in production, so they do it pretty early. And I have no system, no method, no plan, no outline. So soon after I've started writing it, they say, what is it about? And I say, I don't know. And so, <laughs> so they do, Thanks. they make a cover just out of thin air. And both in the UK cover and the American cover, they put trees on the cover. And there is no trees in the book whatsoever. <laughs> but it's a nice looking picture. It is. Okay, very good. So, so you don't help your publishers at all by. It could, because you don't know, but they just have to whistle blind, really. They do, and fair enough, you know, because I don't think that anybody's going to resent the fact that, you know, they, they look at the cover and it's got trees on it. I don't think anybody's going to no. resent well, it at looking the end of to, the book. I'm looking say, forward to how. <laughs> when, when do the trees climb? Climbs in? Yeah. a tree? Yeah. yeah. In this book. Okay, take us into the world of Blue Moon. Well, it opens in a town that I don't name. It's a sort of medium-sized city and no real significance, just a typical generic American city. Uh, I'm I'm picturing it kind of eastern probably rather than western and slightly southern rather than northern, Um, but just a generic city big enough to have organized crime and, in fact, big enough to have two gangs. One is controlling the west and one is controlling the east of the city and Reacher blunders into what is the beginning of a gang war, and he does it with uh, by trying to look after an old guy that he sees on a bus there 's an old guy on a bus, obviously down at down on his luck, and he has a wad of cash in his pocket and he 's asleep and The guy next to it to him is obviously going to steal this money, so reaches is thinking oh, I should do something about that so he does the old man gets off the bus. The young kid who wants to see all the money follows him, and Reacher follows both of them. And that was the opening scene, and you know, then you, you have the titles and the first commercial break or whatever, and then you get into the story where Reacher helps the guy out. The guy's grateful. Re- he can't walk very well because he's been knocked down and his leg hurts, so Reacher helps him home. He finds out what the problem is, and Reacher being Reacher, he thinks, well, okay, we, I better, I better fix this.
3: Why is it an anonymous town? Why don't you say it's... Detroit or because uh,
0: Partly because I didn't want to have to be that specific. I mean, the flippant answer is I didn't want to actually have to do any research and find out what Detroit is actually <laughs> like. But I just want to – it's not about the town. It's really just about the people in it. And so I felt rather than muddy it up – because whatever you mention any particular place, two things happen. Either somebody's got a cousin there and so they, they have a sort of emotional connection to it that interferes with the story – or else you get the the one-way street wrong and people write in and say, I lived there and the, mm. that street goes the other way. And that kind of stuff is tedious. So I thought, keep it unnamed. Keep it um, representative of something, but not specific.
2: I tell you what, um, I mean, I love this. And obviously, it, it absolutely does what you what you hope it to do, which is rattle along. And and I, whenever I say things like that, people always think it's the, the bare minimum you should get from a thriller. I can't tell you the number of thrillers that I've picked up that do not rattle along. I want to um, just draw your attention to what I I have to say is my favourite sleeve uh, quote that I think I've seen this year, which is from Patricia Cornwell. Uh, so, and she says on the back of the book, sometimes you just want someone who can beat the blank out of people. I pick up Jack Reacher when I'm in the mood for someone big to solve my problems, which is great. And I want, it prompted the question for me because um, I'm obviously a massive fan of Jack Reacher. I've read a, a, a number of the books and it seems to me that it's often uh, that split between... This is a physically imposing character who can absolutely more than hold his own in a fight, but it's also someone who can think things through and there's a degree of deduction there. I wonder, as a writer for you, which is the element you have the more fun with writing? Is it the action sequences or is it, uh, is it, is it the sort of deduction, the, the mental side?
0: Uh, what I really love is is the unlikely combination of both of those things because we're, we're used to the idea that if you're brainy, you're sort of weak or you know slender or whatever, and if you are brawny, then you're also dumb. And so I like to have the the contrast between the two sides is physically invulnerable but he's also very smart and i think the two things are unexpected and you know these are thrillers where he's he's kicking butt all the time and uh shooting people in the head and so on but also a lot of them the vital clue is an apostrophe in a note or a hyphen or something like that he's capable of deduction he's really sherlock holmes and in fact a spanish Journalist once coined this phrase for him because you know he lives nowhere, he has no possessions, and so on. And so, this Spanish journalist calls him Sherlock Homeless, which I think is pretty, <laughs> pretty good. good. Yeah, puns in a foreign language, not bad. <laughs> does
3: he does he Does he have any would you say physical or emotional vulnerability?
0: I think uh, physically no, because what I was trying to do was just just give people that feeling that we all have that you know suppose you're walking home late at night and it's dark and you're alone on the street and then two guys turn the corner and come walking towards you. You feel a little nervous, whoever you are. You, you just don't know what's going to happen. You feel a little vulnerable. Suppose you didn't have to. Suppose that nothing practical could ever worry you physically. I wanted people to have that feeling just as a, a relief, really, from real life. Um, but so I, I, but I love doing the the smart stuff too. I think that um, – and he knows all kinds of weird things. Um, I think people, I've had letters from psychologists and psychiatrists who read the book and they diagnose him. Um, You know, he's Asperger's or he's autistic or something because he is that kind of pedant Um, and like I am a number person. And of course, that makes me feel really good because obviously your main character is basically yourself. So I've got psychiatrists writing in calling me uh, autistic. It's great. Do, do you, when people do that, when they
2: come to you and say, I think, you're, I think Jack is this, I think he's, he's that, do you get at all possessive? Because I know when I've spoken to other authors, they sometimes get very possessive about their characters. And when you say, this is a thoroughly unlikable person, they're like, no, no, not. I'm a f- thoroughly wonderful person. What, what, Actually,
0: not I'm the exact opposite because I believe in, a, in an intellectual sense that uh, first the, first of all, the book is written, then it is read, then it exists. Therefore, the reader contributes half of the input, really. So if the reader says this guy is X, Y, or Z, then he is because the reader decides. It's not up to the writer to decide. The reader makes that decision. And so in a way, I depend on the readers to tell me who Reacher is and what the book is about and all that kind of stuff. Um, Ostensibly,
3: it's about gang warfare in this unnamed town. And we have ukrainians in one half and we have the albanians in the other and i did read it thinking are there towns should we say city i don't is it a city
0: i would say city okay yeah
3: are there cities in the us that have gang warfare that is as bad as as the one that you're describing here with Ukrainians
0: and Albanians? Well, obviously, you ramp it up a little bit for a thriller. But yeah, basically, I mean, organized crime is a thing and it it was traditionally Italian and and now it's much more Eastern European. Uh, The uh, the Russian mob is is strong in America, especially in the Northeast, uh, in New York and so on. And uh, Ukrainians, certainly, Albanians too. And uh, so I think it is entirely plausible, yeah. And I don't want to give... Too much away about the situation
3: that Richard finds when he's followed. You talked about the the old guy who's got some issues, and he follows him home, and then there's a then there's a predicament. But
0: uh,
3: how does the predicament of this old timer work its way into the situation in this town with gang warfare?
0: Well, I mean, we'll give a little bit away because it's not really that important. I mean, in fact, it's deliberately not that important to the plot, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the the guy owns owes a lot of money to loan sharks because he has medical debts and i put that in because in america people are going to read this story and here's a here's an old couple who are uh losing everything and about to go bankrupt and in fact have to get into desperate danger involved with loan sharks because of medical bills now that is a dramatized thing obviously i mean not everybody's in imminent peril of death But in America, if you get sick, you do have a severe chance of losing everything and going bankrupt. So an American reads this book, they think, yeah, that's normal. That is absolutely a normal part of the landscape. And I think in other parts of the world, especially in Britain, people are going to think, well, that's outrageous. And I did want to somehow bring in that contrast that we have two different systems. And what is regarded as completely normal in one place is regarded as bizarre in another
2: is that something you feel particularly strongly
0: about the, the uh, availability of health care in in the states well i do i mean you know this is not a podcast about politics or medical issues but it's a huge it is a huge problem and it's probably an insoluble problem i think because the nhs in britain uh, much as we love it we've got to say there were a number of factors that were significant at the time it was set up which was the late 1940s and there was a bunch of uh, of characteristics going around there. Number one, the people trusted the government back then. They just had World War II, which was a very centrally planned thing by governments everywhere, and it had succeeded in a spectacular fashion. We won with central management of everything. So people tended to trust the government to manage a thing. Number two uh, – Medical science didn't do much back then in the 40s. All the stuff that we now deal with, it was science fiction, unheard of. You know, heart transplants, organ transplants, all this kind of thing, MRIs, all that kind of thing, was completely unheard of. So healthcare back then was affordable. And thirdly, the population, because of the cultural inheritance of the past, was very undemanding. People would go to the doctor maybe twice in their life. They wouldn't go if they could avoid it. And all of those things have gone away now. People don't trust the government. Medical science is incredibly sophisticated and expensive. And people go to the doctor all the time, especially in America. There's this mania. Everything must be correctable. Everything must be perfect. So whatever you got wrong with you, you'll go to the doctor. My sister-in-law goes to the doctor constantly. She's one of these women that takes seven, eight pills a day. Everything must be put right. Right. And that's an attitude that makes healthcare essentially unaffordable. And I
3: wonder if this is part, as you say, this isn't a politics podcast and you don't write political books, but you do with a small P. And we've spoken before about the opioid crisis, which you made a very specific point of including uh, in a Reacher book. And I wonder if this is just part of, the, maybe not deliberate, maybe you just stumbled into it the way you describe writing writing your books, but... Uh, no one will finish this book and uh, not realise that you have majored here big time on the way we provide healthcare for folk.
0: Yeah, I I don't want to do rips from the headlines and I don't want to do overtly political statements, but you've got to describe the landscape in which the story is taking place, the architecture of the society in which it's happening. And that is part of it. That is an absolute common factor that you are a little bit worried in America. If you get sick you could go bankrupt.
2: I want to talk to you, uh, th- there's something um, that Jack uh, refers to in the book and it um, f- uh, triggered off a, a few uh, lights in my head um, where he talks about how he'd, he'd found a book that um, uh, advocated the idea of going with your gut as mm. opposed to overthinking it. And it felt to me a little bit like uh, the Blink book, uh, which I'm guessing that was that was the reference. As it turned out, when I was waiting for your book to appear, I got in contact with your publishers who I said, can you send me the new, ja- the new Lee Child? And they sent me your other book that you've just written as well about the hero. And you referenced within that when you first started writing Jack Reacher that you thought, I could overthink this and think, who is this guy? How old is he? What is his background? You know, what about his family? All of those kind of things. Or I could just write him. And I'll just write him. And it, felt, it feels like it, it comes from a gut as opposed to a, to, a, to a sort of mental place.
0: That's true. But they were two separate things. The, the book that Reacher finds on the bus was it's supposed to be Blink yeah. by Malcolm Gladwell. And I did that because Gladwell is a Reacher fan. And um, so it was like a hat tip. Oh, really? It was okay. like, thanks, mate. Uh, I wasn't, he's, and he's
3: coming on the show very soon. Yes. So.
0: I will please give him my best regards. Um, but when I did start writing, yeah, I mean, I'd been in television before and uh, I had learned that you cannot plan a success. And in fact, the more you try to plan it, the worse it's going to be. It has to be instinctive from the gut because to return to what I said earlier, the reader decides it's not up to the author. The author does not say, Hey, my guy is really cool. Because (laughs) if you do that, the reader's going to hate him. (laughs) You just present the guy and the reader makes up his mind. And so it was It was partly a gut decision. It was partly just professional expertise. I know that you cannot sit there and assemble a laundry list of what you need to do because otherwise the book is dead from the beginning. It has to be organic. It has to have a vivid beating heart of its own. And if you do it... According to what you should do, I mean, where do you stop with that? you know i want I want men to read it, I want women to read it. I want women of a certain age to read it. I want young people to read it. I want very old people to read it. If you start making a list of what you 've got to, all the boxes you 've got to check, then the project is dead from the start we had a, uh, a
3: an email last time you were on <clears throat> from uh, a listener who he was basically saying, and forgive me, I can't remember who, uh, I can't remember your name, but anyway, she said, "Could you get Reacher to fall for someone like me? I'm middle-aged and a bit boring." I mean, essentially, <laughs> that was uh, that was the essence uh, of the email, and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to look forward to blooming just to see if you've taken. Uh, her advice. Anyway, we, got, we meet Abby, the waitress, and I thought, no, you
0: didn't. No, no, not in this book, but I absolutely know what that reader was asking. Absolutely. And I'm completely sympathetic to it. And I'm always trying to push it in, in that direction. Absolutely. I want all readers to feel that it could be them, specifically them in the story. And in a way, absolutely, with the women, absolutely, I should. And in one book I did. I deliberately did that. She was older. She was hefty. She was you know, not a supermodel um, because I wanted ordinary people to feel that they're in there too. And I try and do that with villains as well, which is difficult with villains because in a thriller you need a pretty big bad guy. And in this book certainly they're horrible. But I've always been trying to push it towards – the, the bad guy is, is slightly vulnerable and and, uh, and slightly normal. Night School was a book uh, I did a few years ago where a, the guy is trying to sell a nuclear bomb, so he's a pretty bad guy. I love that
3: book. I think I'd, I'd love that. I read that last year, actually.
0: Right. and so But he otherwise is a sad, vulnerable, quite, <laughs> right. quite sort of uh, tragic character in a way.
3: He's a squirt. I think my dad yeah. would have called him a squirt. <laughs> yeah, he was
0: a little squirt who was trying to get by, and he was constantly hurt and rejected and so this he was just trying to make some money and the banality of the bad guy is important to me and the um yeah i should absolutely i should do more normal women but the problem with that is that you know i've got to live with that character for six months while i'm writing the book and you know, I'm a guy, and so I just sort of <laughs> naturally drift towards the uh, Abigail, Ab- the waitress. Abigail, yeah. the waitress. Yeah, who is, uh, you know, what is she, thirty two or something, and slim and elfin and gamine and dressed in black and very cute and very adventurous as well in terms yes. of what they do. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes.
2: Just on the
3: subject of squirts, <laughs> can I, and uh, because we're talking about an older book, I think we can be, maybe we could be slightly more revealing about it. But on this, on that. I read that book and I thought, you must never assume that you know what's going to happen in a Reacher book. You might know a few things, you might make a few assumptions, but the way the squirt cops it in the end, because he does, I guarantee no one would have have worked (laughs) that out because you go, oh, (laughs) (laughs) wow, you know what I mean? I kind of assumed that Reacher would sort him out, but without giving anything, which is, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And there's an element of that in this book as well.
0: And that is because I don't make a plan. I don't make an outline. Because if you do, obviously, yeah, the guy meets some kind (laughs) of definitive end. You know, it's like The Last Act of Hamlet or something. And uh, because I don't make a plan, it's just spontaneous. Literally that second that I'm writing that sentence, it pops into my head. And it it can be something unmagnificent and it can be something undramatic. And again, that's something I like to do. You know, you get all the way through the book chasing the bad guy and then maybe he falls down the stairs and breaks his neck.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Has has it ever got to the point where you have killed the baddie and you thought, actually, that is not a good enough death. He deserves to have far worse than I've just given him.
0: I want the reader to feel that. Yeah, I think it's a bit overblown if Richard does something that is so grotesque that maybe exceeds the reader's expectation. But Mm. I would like the reader, if if I've done my job making the bad guy bad, the reader is always going to say, oh, you deserve worse than that. On the subject of death,
3: would it be fair to say there's more death in this book than would be customary? Are we above
0: average here? I think we are probably way above average (laughs) in this one. Way above average. What do you put that down to? Uh, Trump... <laughs> uh, you know, I was sitting there writing it uh, from last September th- through about this April, and uh, the atmosphere is so toxic that it obviously leaked through. And I was, I remember taking those momentary decisions as you go through all right, what now? Oh, kill them all. <laughs> yeah, that's how I was feeling.
3: Yeah, and more guns than normal?
0: And a saw actually in this one. <laughs> He uses. I won't give too much away, but let's say it does involve a trip to the hardware store where he buys a crosscut saw.
3: Yes. Well, so <laughs> this is this something else we we can put at the at, at the foot of the American president? Is
0: it? Yeah, seriously. I, I, since uh, since Trump started campaigning, obviously I read all my friends' books and uh, as many other books as I can. And the writing has been consistently good and, I've you know, better than you expect. In any one year, one or two of those guys is going to produce a great book. But they were all producing great books. And I thought, why is this? And I think as writers and as readers, we're desperate to escape. We're just burrowing deep, deep, deep into an imagined world where uh, we can get rid of things, we can do things on the page that we can't do in real life, and... I think it has had a, a strangely beneficial effect on fiction, that people are just are just hiding in it so much more than they were before. Is there an element of anger in that, do you think, then? Uh, I think we're beyond anger now. I think horror, you know, we had horror, disbelief, anger, and so on, and now we just want to escape or just hide. You know, I, what I said initially is I'm going to adapt Michelle Obama's phrase. You know, she said, when they go low... We go high. My, my adaptation is when they go low, I'll get high. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's not quite what she was getting at, no, I don't think. That, well, I th- that's how I took it. But then, yeah, probably not. On it's the subject too to, responsible.
3: On the subject of you know, that broader um, political environment, you are uh, we've got you in the middle of what I think is called a friendship tour mm. uh, when you and some fellow writers are,
0: are, are, are touring around Europe. What's, what's the idea behind this? Well, it was Ken Follett's idea. Who Ken is a you know veteran thriller writer who has a lot of uh, readership in Europe, and uh, he was concerned that whatever the sort of populist message or the political message is coming out of uh, out of Britain at the moment, we should. It would be awful if if the individual reader in Spain or Germany or wherever felt that we as british authors we 're rejecting them or turning our back on them it 's not about sales at all because you know it 's not the British edition that sells in europe it 's translation so it 's not about sales or money it 's about emotion We want to f- We treasure those readers and we want them to feel that whatever happens politically on a personal level, writer to reader, friend to friend, we are not hostile and and we 've been saying in fact you know, almost nobody in Britain is actually hostile to the people. This is just some crazy political situation. So that's the message we wanted to give. It's me and Ken Follett and Jojo Moyes and Kate Moss. And it's turning out, we call ourselves ABBA because we've got two (laughs) boys and two girls and it feels like a a band on tour. And we're having a lot of fun with it, actually. It's, it's, I always dread going on tour, you know, because it's a big dislocation and discomfort and so on. And you can't smoke anywhere, and you're jet lagged. You can't sleep, and all that kind of thing. But uh, it's turning out to be a gas, actually.
3: And is that because you have company? Because most of the time, when you're on tour, you you know you have your support staff. Obviously, from your very fine publishers at Transworld. But would would you, is it because there are other writers and you're all equal and you're, you know, it's a whole different vibe?
0: All of that. Plus, they're writers that I don't normally see because if I ever do anything with other writers, they're inevitably genre people the same as me. You know, we're on a panel about thrillers or whatever, and this is a, a random selection. You know, me and Jojo Moy's got nothing in common, really, in terms of subject matter. But, um, and all writers have the same problems. And it, they're, very, they're very hard to talk about because being a writer is just the best job in the world. I mean, it's just a fantastic job. You're getting paid money to sit there and make things up. And so you cannot talk to anybody about the problems of being a writer, otherwise I think you're a real prima donna. But there are issues and there are pressures and so the only other people you can talk to about them are the people going through the same thing, in other words, other writers. And um, So it's always reassuring to do that. The the last
2: time you were on, um, Lee, uh, you revealed that you have an inordinate amount of coffee when you're writing. Just, I mean, I like my coffee, but you knock me out of the park with the amount that you get through. Is that still the case? Are you still necking caffeine at a a disgraceful amount.
0: Unbelievable amount. Yeah, I mean, I have one of those big drip pots and I do, I fill it up to 12 cups. And that is, (laughs) um, you know, before breakfast, I get through that. And then it's uh, that, in fact, I got two coffee machines because one has to be always ready while the other one is brewing. So that, yeah, I drink easily 30, maybe 40 cups a day. Um, And if I don't, then I, first of all, get a horrendous headache and I'm asleep all day.
3: Well, we ought to say there's a, there is a shocking moment in Blue Moon where Reacher has a beer.
0: Yeah, which that's is a rare a, thing. Mm. It's a very rare thing, but that's only because they didn't serve coffee in that bar. Otherwise, yes. he would have had coffee. But he has a beer, and he's rather disparaging about it. He says it's very foamy and uh, not very nice.
3: Where are we in the uh, uh, in the in the Reacher franchise? Uh, in t- when you were on last time, you were talking. You just made some new announcements about. TV and mm. uh, and so on. What's the latest on that?
0: That's progressing really nicely. A little slower than I thought it might, uh, but uh, we got we need to get this absolutely right. And so um, the pilot is written. What they call the Bible is written. You know, which is this huge compendium of all the facts that you're going to. All the writers are going to have to know. And um, the first season is mapped out. Now, what happens in America coming up next week is Thanksgiving. So nothing's going to happen before then. And then Christmas comes. So probably. We'll pause it now till January and then start casting it and uh, start making it. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be very different than the movies.
3: Can I suggest Danny DeVito as as Jet Reacher? You can,
0: <laughs> yeah, you can suggest it. You can suggest whoever you like. But, uh, you know, I'm going to... The, the Tom Cruise thing in the movies, the movies were... Actually, funnily enough, the first movie is really coming back in popularity. Yeah, I think it's a great movie, the first yeah, one. Yeah. People, are, people are saying, you know what, yeah. that was actually yeah, yeah. pretty yeah. good. And, yeah. and, and it does. It has a kind of steely style to it. it it's um, I think it's a fine movie. But the readers never really accepted Cruz. And um, I'm still friends with him. You know, we get along very well. And he's going to be an executive producer on the TV show because um, whatever else he is, he's a fantastic theoretician about story. It's really interesting talking to him. Everything comes down to how do we tell this story? How do we tell it better? So I wanted that involved, but we're going to find a different actor. Because Cruz is a feature film actor. He will not act on television. So we need a, we need a new actor, and he's going to be the biggest mother you, know, <laughs> you have ever seen. Because I ain't going through all that again.
3: The biggest melon farmer
0: <laughs> yeah. of all
3: time. Um, I don't mean this to be particular. I don't.
0: This is again a bit of a crowbar. Does Reacher do Christmas? Uh, you, you know the, the mail on Sunday once uh, they they wanted me to do the Christmas story. So Reacher is is shown at Christmas time, but it is um, it, he's trying to get away from everywhere. So he goes to California and they have a freak snowstorm. So it's like Christmas in California. Yeah, is he? Would he be fun at Christmas to be around? Yeah, it'd be great. I mean, he wouldn't have any presents to give anybody because he doesn't do stuff like that. But I, he'd he'd eat the dinner and he'd certainly have a good time. Yeah. Uh, listen, um, Lee, it's
3: always such a pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast. And uh, we look forward to your kind of annual visit. Uh, and even though we're just, you know, it's, you're only here very briefly. Thank you very much indeed for for Coming along and talking to us again,
0: it's a real pleasure. And you're not going to say this because you're too modest, but I just saw the jacket for your new book next year. It looks great, it looks like it's going to be a great book. So maybe what we should do is uh, next time we'll do it the other way around. I'll ask you about your book. Yeah, you Check go. This out.
2: Yeah, so have you seen the because last time I saw you, yeah. you hadn't. Do you want to see it? Yeah, this, yeah, yeah, do no, no, yeah, yeah. it's, it's going to be great. Yeah, yeah you can describe yeah, it. Like yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, you can't. Oh, can I not? No, have you
3: settled can't. on the title yet? Are we allowed to say that? No, you can't say the title. No. All right. Okay. Hang on. So let me just see if I can find This is it. great.
0: It was, it's, a, it's a really good image, actually. I was, uh, you know, professionally, I'm thinking, yeah, that will work. That will do really well. And what I love about uh, British fiction is they're way ahead of the American publishers in terms of you have, a, you have the author name, you have the title, and then you, they do a strap line that um, sort of entices you into the story. You can react, but you can't describe it. Oh, what? I can't describe it? No. Not at all. No, it hasn't been that's
3: announced. Not
2: a, that's a really good that's a really good cover. It's
3: fine, that's it is. a
0: really good cover. Is that a good cover. It's yeah. A, it's a great image, it's a great strap line. I mean, the regular mm, person in the book yeah. is going to look at that and be quite intrigued.
2: Yeah. What you, what you want is a question, don't you? You want a question in your head of what on earth is about to happen. Right
0: yeah, or, or a sort of chilling feeling. That, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, that's yeah. going yeah, to be a good one. I'm looking forward to you coming back next year and then <laughs> we, can, we can have this conversation uh, again. There'll be another little bit of uh, Lee in our next podcast where Lee does the Q&A, uh, but for the moment, Lee Child, thank you so much. My pleasure. Always good to have Lee Child on the show. Fabulous. What a man Fabulous. he is. Yeah. And um,
2: do you think he was serious about interviewing me? I think so. I think definitely when, you're, when your new book... Because the new book that you do will be the first book that you've written since we started this podcast. And we need to mark it in some way other than just saying you've got a new book Could it book be out. one of our books of the year? I think it will definitely be one of our books of the year. So, yeah. Anyway... Yeah.
3: Um, there will be some more Lee Child in the in a few days' time because uh-huh. the q uh, will be will be coming out for the Lee Child fans who want even more. Uh, but uh, meantime, uh, if you go back from where you got this podcast, you'll find that there's
2: hundreds of these things. Yeah, you can compare and contrast with when Lee came in last year when he yeah. did his other book. Yeah, we should think about doing this on the radio. Yeah, we should. <laughs> Let's do this on the radio. Imagine.